you know, our volunteers are our best donors and our donors are often our best volunteers. And there's a real symbiosis there. A lot of political donors are what I call stock pickers. They like to pick candidates. They like to pick winners. The whole thing about, you know, uh, I know so-and-so is a senator or, or that sort of thing. But we're more of a mutual fund. People who understand and get the, the political activism and the community work and the door-to-door relational organizing, those are our, our donors and our supporters. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Doug Linney is founder of Activate America, a grassroots organization focused on mobilizing progressive and democratic volunteers around elections. They're the new name for Flip the 14 and Flip the West, as that organization has grown in scale and ambition. Doug has a long history in politics, and particularly in California, having served the environmental community there for over 35 years as a political strategist. Through his firm, The Next Generation, he's helped advance the environmental agenda by offering campaign services and political strategy. Doug and I had a good conversation about his history in politics and what he's up to with Activate America. So after a quick word with our sponsor, my interview with Doug Linney and Activate America. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Doug. Hi. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I am a political consultant, and uh, I tell people I live at the intersection of politics and the environment, meaning that I enjoy politics, but as I was fearful early on in my career that I would become a political hack because I love politics so much, I really discovered the environment in college as an issue and as a a, a thrust direction to to steer my politics uh, that way. Where did you grow up, Doug? Well, I'm a, I'm a fourth-generation San Franciscan, but I grew up in San Jose in the South Bay of, of uh, the Bay Area. What was your educational path? So it was interesting. I spent uh, two years, my first two years of college at San Jose State, uh, and then transferred to UC Davis to get closer to the capital. And I uh, developed an individual major uh, called environmental policy um, Actually, I'm trying to remember now, but it basically combined politics and environment as an individual major, and it was just a a great area of study. And at the time, planning to go into environmental law, but got waylaid when I discovered uh, there was this thing called 
uh, organizing or political organizing, which was nowhere on the checklist of, of careers that, that I had been aware of <laughs> and totally got me off of my direction. I was working at the California Energy Commission right out of college. Uh, and then I uh, got a, a passionate call for organizing with Friends of the River in order to uh, stop a dam on the Stanislaus River, which I enjoyed rafting on. There was just no turning back once I discovered uh, environmental organizing or organizing. What was it about environment that had you focused on that coming into college and coming out of college? I think it was just, it was a fascinating issue area. I, I also had a strong science bent at the time. Again, I think it was that combination. I think I've always been someone who synthesizes a lot of things. My uh, my dad was a, a, an electrical engineer. My mom was an artist, and I really uh, am a blend of both of them. And the science and the politics, political science is always a misnomer, I think, but the science of uh, the environment uh, and the idea of environmental policy uh, seemed to be a nice combination that way. You know, my mom taught math and my dad taught English literature. I always thought that having two parents with that kind of range yeah. was a helpful thing. Yeah. Yeah. It really, I think it really expands your, the way you think and the way you approach problems or issues uh, that way. But it sounds like this dam coming in may have really taken you in, in a new direction. What was it about organizing around that that grabbed your attention? Um, it was the empowerment. It was a dam that in by the time I got to the issue, was in fact already under construction. And our argument was that it doesn't need to be filled all the way. It shouldn't have been built, but it should be managed in a way that allows for recreational opportunities to still exist uh, and to protect the, the environment, the ecology, the upper part of the river. It was a, a lesson in not just reading about it or working for candidates, which I had done before, uh, but actually empowered me and the volunteers I recruited and worked with to make change. Uh, we worked uh, around a, a particular bill that we were trying to pass in Congress to embody this objective that we had. And it was just exciting to organize people, people who had also shared the magic of the river, help teach them what could be done, to how to, to lobby their congressman, how to meet with a congressman, how to recruit others. It was a very fulfilling kind of adventure. Were you able to change the course of the construction? We didn't. Uh, in that case, it was maybe too little too late. We delayed it, but ultimately uh, the dam's been filled uh, and the river is backed up. Uh, it, it's a terrible thing to go up at, to, to see, but uh, it also was the last dam that was built in California. We swore at the time, never again. Uh, no matter where in uh, our lives, we we're all you know young activists and everything. That uh, later on we would drop everything should there be uh, threats to other dams to to be able to stop them as well. And we've been successful, and, and even moreover, successful in establishing wild and scenic areas in protection of river corridors. Did it feel like it was the little guy against corporate or governmental? What was the match there? Yeah, I think it was the little guy against, in a large sense, against the status quo, against the thinking that we could just dam rivers forever and that would provide hydroelectricity and water and flood control and all these things. Uh, and this was, I, I believe, the 12th dam on the Stanislaus. And it, and it really taught 
me and I think as an educational tool, uh, as we went around on this, that you know there's limits to the way we've done things in the past, and we have to look at uh, at things differently that way. I would say it also taught me in in politics that there's always the fight, if you will, and that the only permanent thing uh, with regards to river protection uh, is the dam that gets built. It's hard to take down a dam, although it's happening now that some of these dams become uh, obsolete. But even wild and scenic protection uh, can be changed uh, with the change of Congress uh, or the change of a president. They're not permanent protections. Uh, and so the fight in politics is always going on. And I think that's a lesson for us today still. We won one election, uh, we passed some legislation, but it can be undone by, uh, you know, if you don't maintain that vigilance going forward. So it looks like you were political director for Friends of the River and for the California League of Conservation Voters. What's a political director do for an environmental group? What'd you learn doing that? Yeah, so the political director uh, helps set the the policy and the direction uh, of the the political parts. So I, I tend to think of things as you know educational uh, or political or even policy and electoral. In the case of uh, an environmental organization, the political director in both cases were were kind of creations that I made there. But uh, you know, help set the direction for the political organizing that we'll do. Uh, the policies that we will uh, choose, the priorities for putting our organizing muscle behind one thing or another, and generally determining programmatic and tactical type uh, uh, developments. What was EcoVenture? Uh, EcoVenture was an organization. So in, in the campaign world, things tend to run in two-year cycles. You get very, very busy in the, in the election year, less busy in the off-election year. And EcoVenture was a C3 organization uh, that was an incubator uh, for other ideas that I had that were often uh, C3 or more educational related or, uh, like I said, kind of incubators for for ideas. And we did work on transportation. We did work on forestry. Uh, They were often continuations of campaigns that we had worked on as well. Can you kind of characterize your career you know, through the 2000s, what were, what were the main things that you were up to? When I finished work or I, I left um, the California League of Conservation Voters, my goal was to establish a political consulting firm uh, that would serve the environmental community, basically be, uh, in, a, in a sense, a political director for, for a lot of organizations that I saw at the time were very policy-oriented, uh, were very educational-oriented, my sense still is that uh, things really happen in elections uh, and things really happen at the, the, the politics level uh, that uh, you can educate people, you can work with people, but if you really want to make change, uh, you, you need to get involved in the politics. The next generation uh, was my consulting firm that uh, I've had since then for the last 25 years that does both electoral work uh, and programmatic work with candidates and environmental causes and as well as you know all kinds of progressive causes how's that consulting firm done we've always remained small it's always been a somewhat of a boutique uh, firm uh, that supports issues in in causes that i feel strongly about we don't do advertising it's all word of mouth but we work with uh, progressive causes and candidates that uh, line up with you know, my own values and 
things that I can feel strongly about. It's I've always found it interesting in in campaigns, and I and I love campaigns. Uh, they're they're kind of mini startups, if you will, for political causes, but they they're very intense as any startup is, and you pour yourself into it. And so unless I feel really strongly about something, it's very difficult for me to want to take on a client uh, and just do the work uh, and go through the motions. Among the clients that you've had over the, what's it, two and a half decades, what have been some of the highlights? You know, really one of my first clients uh, was the Headwaters Forest fight in Northern California, situation where a logging company, part of the Maxim uh, Corporation, had taken over a smaller uh, company in Northern California uh, and was going about just clear-cutting the forest rather than uh, maintaining it sustainably as it had been for a long time. And these were the uh, some of the last remaining groves of old-growth uh, redwoods. And so it was a, a year and a half or so we worked with the local activists who did the heavy lifting but helped provide political strategy that ultimately took advantage of a lot of different factors at the time, but was able to get uh, some pretty significant federal funding and state funding uh, to purchase uh, the the most uh, uh, the oldest of the old growth uh, groves. Other examples like that. That one is particularly interesting because you know as as we uh, go through our career in electoral, especially things kind of go one way and then they go another way. And it's nice to, to feel like you're leaving some legacy <laughs> to, to what you, you're doing. I mean, I've walked like, I don't know, in mere woods or, I mean, it takes so long to create a grove of trees like that so far beyond a human lifetime. It's awful that how much we've wiped that off the whole face of our country and to maintain a, a little bit of it. I'd be pretty proud of that. But tell me some of the other things that you did along the way. Um, well, we've have done a lot of local campaigns uh, and measures. Uh, it seems to be an area where I've I've enjoyed my work with making change uh, and starting uh, up uh, a candidate who maybe has not run for office before, but has a bright future, and helping them with the fundamentals of winning local office and being effective as a political leader. Uh, I'm on the board of directors of the East Bay Municipal Utility District as a, an elected uh, official. It's a great combination to be able to share my experience as an elected official as well as a campaign consultant uh, and helping them to, to get there. So it's not just about winning, but it's also about governing and campaigning in a way that you're setting yourself up to be an effective legislator as well. So, so that's always a f- very fulfilling sort of thing. And I think you know the higher up people run for office, the more they have to make compromises, uh, and the more that the campaigns tend to get dirtier or at least nastier, and the more that you have to go after special interest money. And so, uh, doing campaigns at the local level is a very fulfilling type thing. You've seen some tremendous changes in California politics over that time. It really went from a much more contested state by party to fairly dominated by the Democrats over that time. How has it changed from your perspective and how has it changed particularly on the environment? It is interesting. It's it's hard now to even think back to the times when we had Governor Wilson and Governor Duke Magian and and our Republican, where that was even possible uh, to have that. I tend to think that there may be a day where it can come back again. But California has always been uh, progressive. 
the whole Silicon Valley ethos, at least in the Bay Area, and I've, I've lived in Los Angeles, but that was a long time ago. Uh, but I think that permeates everywhere, our sense of optimism uh, about making things happen and making things change and shirking conventional wisdom for doing things, uh, I think has really changed uh, the way we view uh, what we do on the environment, as well as you know, a lot of other things. But you know, clearly, uh, California has been blessed with oceans and a lot of open space and a lot of parks. Uh, and I think people are attracted to living here because of that. And I think uh, companies get that. Uh, I think voters get that. Uh, and, you know, we're always wanting more. And do you think on the environment, it's done a good job? I'm, I'm in the camp. I want more. We've done well. We've done perhaps better than most. I think there's room for us to provide leadership. I think one of the things in, in my environmental political uh, work the nice thing about being based in California is that California is big uh, and we influence the rest of the nation so that when years ago I was working on the, the climate change issue quite a bit, uh, we had the feeling in California, well, if we can pass strict laws, uh, we can be a, an example for the rest of the country, whereas trying to get something passed through uh, Congress or everything was just seemed impossible. And I, national groups would come uh, and talk about it. Uh, and I just say, God, I just, you know, I, I can't even wrap my mind around what we have to try and do to get some really strong environmental policy done at the federal level, but we can do it in California and we influence so many other states. Uh, and certainly with our clean air laws, uh, and our influence on, uh, the automobile industry, uh, that's one of the most significant examples. Uh, but you know, there's room to do more there on that. And it feels in some ways, California is behind Europe, for instance, on the automobile. Cal uh, Europe has taken some much more stringent uh, clean air measures and incentives for electric vehicles uh, than even California. And so we're, we're playing catch up. What do you make of this current recall of the governor effort and how is that going to affect California politics? In California, we have a, a, a such an interesting history with recalls and with putting measures on the ballot. There is a, a very vibrant industry uh, for collecting signatures, whether it's for recalls or uh, for ballot initiatives. And so, you know, with money, you can get anything on the ballot, literally. That's what's happening. And they're taking advantage of a situation where under COVID, uh, there's a minority of people that you know, don't want to wear masks. The same controversies we're seeing in other states, uh, but they've organized to, to put this on the ballot. This is one more example of uh, the Republicans who don't really have an agenda, but really are anti-everything. I'm not too concerned, uh, but it's something that we have to take seriously, and we'll have to divert some of our resources to make sure that, that uh, uh, the, the governor is defended. Did the California Republican Party become Trumpist? Is it under the thrall of Donald Trump the same way it seems to have been in many states? I wouldn't say in the same way that it's been in many states. Of course, we're, we're home of, of uh, uh, Congressman McClintock and, of course, most famously, uh, Minority Leader McCarthy. Um, so, but there's fewer Republicans in general, and, and so uh, they kind of get squeezed down to the most conservative uh, ones. But I, I haven't seen in the same way the Trumpism here in California, and, and many Republicans or many, 
many people I know that were Republicans have switched to independent. Um, and again, that's also left the, the party leadership to the most conservative uh, types. I think California has still escaped to some extent uh, the real crazy Trumpism. But you know, the, the Republican Party in California doesn't hold much sway. Uh, on anything. And that might be another reason for this recall is they finally have something they can get behind and, and do. It's another political cycle. They seem to keep coming. What are the main things on your plate for the 2022? In 2017, I, I started a group called Flip the 14. It became Flip the West. Uh, we're now uh, evolving into even a more n- national group. So Flip the 14 was the 14 uh, Republican congressional districts in California. And um, Flip the West was a regional Senate-based uh, flipping exercise to, to flip a number of Western states, Arizona, Colorado, uh, Montana, Alaska, uh, and so on. And it's now becoming Activate America. That's a big thrust of what uh, I'll, I'll be working on in this election cycle. What will Activate America do? So Activate America, our secret sauce, if you will, is activating uh, volunteers to get involved in, in elections. And I talked earlier about you know, the, the feeling of empowering volunteers in my uh, Stanislaus campaign. And this is really uh, an extension of that. It's giving cause to volunteers, people who are already motivated to do something whether in the case of getting rid of Trump or getting rid of Congress members or flipping the House or flipping the Senate and giving them the tools uh, to be able to do that and making it a really low bar uh, to get involved in, uh, in political change. Activate America will be doing that on a, on a national basis. Rather than just flipping, we'll have to be holding the Democratic seats. We flipped seven seats in California in the 2018 cycle lost four of those in 2020. Uh, we need to get those back and, and, and more in the next cycle. Uh, but then also, you know, defend Georgia and uh, Arizona where we just flip those and we need to hold those seats and uh, as well as others. When you're talking about activating volunteers, are you basically saying there's a surplus of political activists in California that we can deploy elsewhere? Is it volunteers outside of California too? It's exactly that. And I think that's, that's where we're able to do something that um, is, is very additive to the uh, you know, progressive electoral uh, process. I live in the, in the East Bay, lots of volunteers, Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco, San Jose, um, who live in blue districts, who have blue Congress members, uh, who live in a blue state, who have a blue <laughs> governor, uh, is like, what's, what's there to do? Uh, how, to, how can we be involved in this? It's a lot of uh, energy and effort that, if harnessed well, can, uh, can really make a difference. And so that's what our, our goal is. But it's not just California. Uh, we have uh, groups in, in Boston, in Chicago, and really more than half the states right now that are active with us. Our thing is to make make the bar as low as possible uh, for volunteers to get involved. It often starts with writing postcards, uh, which we sometimes refer to as the entryway <laughs> drug for political activism. Here, write 15, 25 postcards uh, to these voters in, in uh, these battleground districts. And when you finish those, here's 25 more. Or, hey, you want to try doing some phoning? 
uh, now or some texting. It's tough because even you know the the Senate campaigns in in let's say Arizona, you know how do they tap into those volunteers uh, or the potential? It's just not easy for a volunteer who or, or someone again they they don't know they're a volunteer but they're frustrated with what's going on. I say you know I I, I like. Uh, you know, Mark Kelly uh, in Arizona, but, you know, here's 10 bucks, I'll send them. But, you know, they can do so much more, making it easy for them to, to volunteer, if not in that campaign directly, through us to reach the voters in that district uh, is a very, very powerful thing. There's a, quite a few groups that have a similar model to that. I'm sure you're aware of, you know, like Sister District or Swing Left or some of the other folks that, you know, take volunteers from one place and aim them at another place. What's different about what you guys do? Sometimes uh, I think, I'm not sure we're different. I mean, any group is going to be different than another just naturally because of the the people who are running it. Um, And I I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out what they're doing. I just know that there's a market for more groups to do uh, what we're doing. Uh, We started out in California, and so our advantage over, say, Swing Left or or some of the other groups was that we were here and we were on the ground and we had organizers who were working it more intensely than they could from a national perspective. We're kind of a, you know, a cafeteria style. So if you're an indivisible group in, you know, Modesto or in Arizona uh, or whatever, you know, you have a certain program that maybe your national group has has given you but you hear about something that we're doing uh, and you like it. And, and so a lot of groups that we work with, they, they may be a chapter of uh, Swing Left or another group, uh, but they're still fairly independent. They're not bound to follow anybody's program. And, uh, and we try to make our programs attractive to volunteers who want to put some time into things. And again, that low bar to get involved, we've found an appeal to, to uh, volunteers that way. Uh, we we make sure that our training uh, is done really well, uh, that uh, the volunteers feel good about what they've accomplished uh, and want to come back and do things again. And that's that's what we focus on. There's some significant attempts to evaluate what kind of volunteering is most impactful. That had to be, to some extent, thought out again with a pandemic going on and door to door, not working out. But to what extent do you try to take advantage of the science around politics in pointing your your volunteers within that cafeteria? It's less feasible than if you have a paid operation where you can you know train your your team, your paid uh, canvassers to go out and do certain things. We're a little bit more bound by what people like to do, but but frankly, most volunteers want to be effective, and so our programs need to be effective. Uh, they need to have results, and I'm a political consultant. I've been doing this for 25, 30, 40 years now, uh, and and so you know everything that we do uh, is is through the lens of how are we being effective, and and some of that is are we duplicating somebody else's efforts? Are we you know, finding a gap that nobody else is, is doing. So we set up so that we're working with local groups uh, who do have on the ground uh, operations. We try to work from their scripts, from their polling, uh, from all that work uh, as we go along and integrate that into us. And sometimes we'll, as we did in Georgia, 
uh, we ended up using their scripts, their lists, and basically supplementing the work that they could do uh, with paid people, uh, with you know thousands of volunteers from across the country to help as well. It seems like a big part of where you get to exercise choice is in where you target. You know what races you pick to get involved in, where you throw your weight. How do you do that? Um, so that is a combination of opportunity. You know, polling. When when we started uh, this last round in the 2020 elections, uh, it was clear that certain states were in play. Uh, we wanted to be in the, the states that uh, were closest to California because at the time we were thinking we'd probably be sending uh, volunteers to do canvassing there as well, and we couldn't take on a, a national scope anyway. Uh, so Colorado and Arizona were the first two states that we got involved in, also ones that, that you know, were, were presidential battlegrounds. Uh, so kind of the, the layering there. Uh, as time went on, we found some other opportunities. Some felt like long shots at the time turned out to be particularly long shots like Alaska and even Iowa, uh, where the polling showed it pretty close. Uh, but again, we were looking to fill a gap. A lot of what we do is uh, look to be where others weren't. And uh, after a while, Arizona and Colorado had quite a few groups, uh, attention from the rest of the country. And so we expanded our vision a little bit and said, uh, you know, Iowa was was certainly possible and there wasn't a lot going on there as it, as it turned out. So it was really an opportunity for us to break some new ground. And the polling discussion is a whole nother thing, but, you know, the polls at the time showed this race is very close. It was hard not to be more hopeful about the Senate in 2020 than it turned out. I mean, I was definitely rooting hard in Montana and Iowa among some of the states that you've mentioned and North Carolina, Maine. Why do you think what happened happened? Well, there's two ways to look at it. One is that were the polls wrong? Were we misled to even think that we had a shot at those? Yeah, there's a little of that in question of are, are the polls able to accurately tell us, uh, you know, in an age where people don't pick up phones and people self-select who are going to do polls uh, or, you know, spend the time going through with a, a pollster or doing something online. But I think there's the, the more interesting question of are we able to reach people that aren't like automatically progressive? Uh, when we were doing work in Iowa and uh, Alaska, it's not the same as working in the Bay Area. We've yet to find the perfect way to reach those voters. Uh, as we were calling even the Democrats in those states, we weren't always getting the kind of response that we might have expected otherwise. You call and you try to qualify the voter whether they're going to vote the right way or not before you spend a lot of time uh, promoting uh, a, a, you know, vote by mail or things. And we're still struggling with, you know, what's what's the right message, uh, what's the right way uh, to reach them. And I do think it's a longer term proposition. I think we're in the middle of that. I think there was an awakening of the progressives uh, after the Trump election uh, in a way that we haven't seen for a long time. And I think it's continuing now. You know, my fear going into this this next cycle was that we'd see the Obama phenomenon where people kind of lost interest and said, hey, we got it now. Uh, we're going to let them take over. I'm going to go back to my life. But I think people are still on edge. And so the challenge to us now, I think, especially not just this cycle, but 
immediately right now is make sure that the voters are feeling like the Democrats are delivering, that Biden is delivering on his promises. He's not just saying things and that the the accusations from the other side that this is socialism or cancel culture uh, and those sorts of things, you know, just just don't have resonance as much as a, a check that comes in the mail and jobs that are that are opening up and their lives are getting better and they're being reminded of that. Because I think this election coming up is an opportunity for a referendum on what Democrats can really do to deliver to make people's lives better. And that's where I think we'll be able to, you know, we have, we have hope in picking up some states like uh, Iowa and, and others down the line in Montana. If I had a fear about sending progressive volunteers out into the world is that if there's a bunch of people that don't really understand some of the mindset in a more swing district or a lean Republican state, that they actually could backfire. They wouldn't have the understanding of the local feelings to get it right when they went to the door or called on the phone or texted. How do you contend with that? A lot of the work that we do is about getting out the vote, is, is about boosting turnout. And, and sure, a lot of that is, you know, are they motivated by the candidates that we have? Are we able to persuade them? You know, the sweet spot in our targeting uh, is the highly partisan voters, so those voters who are inclined to be Democrat, who are you know either registered Democrat or the you know the indexing uh, in the in the voter file tells us they're likely to vote Democrat, uh, but who are low turnout voters. There's um, you know a reason perhaps we had better success in, in some ways in the 2018 cycle, at least for the targets that we had uh, than in the 2020 was because. That was our targeting, and that was, you know, and I thought we were successful in that. Uh, you know, we, we won seven districts in California and then lost four of them. The turnout and our ability to turn voters out, I think, is is a part of that, and I think we'll have that opportunity again uh, this time. So, a volunteer who's calling a voter and saying, "Hey, this is, you know, are you voting by mail? If uh, you turn in your ballot, do you, those sorts of things are pretty basic sort of things. There's not usually long discussions. We don't have the same capability to do relational organizing uh, that someone at the door and someone uh, on the ground can do uh, who's local. Uh, but we do have the ability to do reminders. Sometimes that's all it takes is, is a, you know, a, a reminder or a, an instruction on how to fill out the uh, absentee ballot application and that sort of thing. And that's, that's what we're here there for. Is there a sort of technology underpinning to your work? Do you build out your own apps to help your volunteers to connect with them? Do you use commercial software that's out there for that purpose? So we use Mobilize. Mobilize America has been a a big part of our signup system, our ability to reach nationally. Our our signups exploded uh, after the general election as we went into the Georgia election because we were one of the first to uh, offer uh, an option for uh, doing postcards uh, to voters in Georgia. Ultimately, we were able to do three rounds of postcards to targeted voters uh, in Georgia. And a lot of that had to do with uh, the fact that it was very easy for people to sign up on, on Mobilize and to find us that way. 
Uh, in fact, at one point, if you Googled postcarding in Georgia, you got our mobilized site for, for postcarding. We, we, when we found out, I said, well, that explains why we exploded. We doubled the number of volunteers in two weeks that we had the entire November election. That and, of course, you know, our ability to use Zoom with phoning, again, allows us to, to bring together a national phone bank, whereas previously you'd have a regional phone bank. You'd have to find a place where people could could meet or something. Uh, but with Zoom, we can have breakout rooms to do training and then rooms where people are doing phoning uh, silently uh, but can see you know a whole room full of other people calling, which is always motivational. So those tools have been pretty important to us to, to be able to, to take this from just a, a local phone bank, you know, a few volunteers here and there to thousands of volunteers uh, in an evening doing calls. You've mentioned the size of your volunteer base doubling. What, what kind of scale are we talking about here? Our current list is right around 75,000 activists and volunteers. I mean, some of them obviously more active than others. It was interesting because we literally doubled doubled our list uh, from after November to the Georgia campaign, where you had basically a national group of volunteers that, that, and people who, who may have been working on Mark Kelly's race in November election, but all of a sudden you know, knew that it was really coming down to Georgia. It really filled a, a, an opportunity there, a gap that, that uh, otherwise you know, would have been wasted. What is your sense of the impact of, of that many people working in the general and in Georgia? Well, impact, I mean, I'll, I'll interpret that as, you know, a, a lot of different ways. One, one is, I think, you know, it, it all made a difference. Georgia is one of those things when you have a close election, everybody gets to claim uh, credit for that and be part of that. Truly, it's a, a situation where Stacey Abrams' group uh, really laid the groundwork. Uh, America Votes, which is another group that we work with a lot, uh, helped bring together a table of organizations that work together uh, in a coordinated way. And then, you know, uh, kind of an open source way of people being able to help and volunteer uh, and, you know, fund the campaigns as well directly. We work, of course, on the independent expenditure side, so we don't work directly with the campaigns at all, uh, but work with other groups uh, that are also on the independent expenditure side, uh, the community organizations uh, and, and so on. It gave us inspiration what I heard at the uh, Georgia table when we talked about get out the vote and everything, he said a lot of people uh, are ready to vote, but they, f- they felt for so long their vote just doesn't count and it doesn't matter. And so that's why they're not voting. Uh, but that the presidential election uh, gave them uh, a sense that, yeah, we can, can make a difference here. And the fact that it went into a runoff uh, made them feel empowered. And that's ultimately the lesson. I think the, the fact that, you know, even I, at, after the November election, was pretty disappointed and pretty discouraged, and I didn't feel particularly optimistic about uh, the Georgia election. And so when we won, uh, was was very inspired uh, by the fact that, hey, it works. <laughs> now we got to keep it going. It did seem like the president interfered to the detriment of his team in Georgia a little bit. That's true. The, the president, by, by uh, you know, saying it was all rigged and everything, I think he discouraged his voters certainly a lot more than, than our voters that way. But not to say that you know, he didn't still have, uh, have an effect. Uh, the president's not going to be on the ballot in 2022. 20, uh, I mean, let's, let's talk about that for a second. I think that's, you know, that was the other thing we found 
the difference between uh, you know, 2018 election cycle and the 2020 election cycle. It really makes a difference to have uh, someone that is you know, a, a cult figure to his followers on the ballot as opposed to uh, not being on the ballot. That, I think, will be an important dynamic to, to take advantage of. The pattern of midterm loss for the party in power is pretty strong pattern. What do you look forward to for 2022? What do you like? What is your, I don't know, spider sense telling you about this upcoming year? <laughs> My spider sense. I've been around too long to, to, to buck con- conventional wisdom. I only know that uh, I'll use that as a something to uh, make me work that much harder and encourage people. You know, this is not going to be easy. This is even harder. We've got a historical uh, precedent. We got the cynicism of voters to, to battle here, but we also have uh, the fact that Trump won't be on the ballot. We also have uh, turnout that we know uh, if if we work hard enough, uh, we can t- turn that to an advantage. That's what we need to do. Yeah, I think it's going to be tough. I didn't think we were going to win Georgia, but we did. So, you know, we'll just uh, we, we go along thinking that we may not win, but we're just going to work that much harder. We're that much smarter. We're that much organi- more organized. And like I said, I, I'm, I'm getting the sense that people are still hungry, without a doubt. People are still hungry to do something and do the right thing. And still worried about the far right and their potential to come back into power. I have not relaxed too much. I'm happy to have Biden in, but I, I feel like the, the republic is still in danger. You know, I think of you, Doug, as a political entrepreneur. You know, you've built a firm or two, you've started groups that have had some impact. What advice would you have for other people wanting to have an impact about being an entrepreneur in the political space? I think it's the same as, as probably any kind of entrepreneurs. Uh, my motivation comes from seeing, seeing a problem and wanting to fix it. And I always try to do some due diligence or a lot of due diligence. Who's already filling that space? Is there a group that I can work with or get behind? I tend to be independent-minded and, and want to do things a little bit differently. I guess that may be what sets me up to, to start organizations rather than uh, being a, a cog in the wheel of, of an existing organization. I'd rather be a cog in the wheel of a group of organizations uh, that do things. Uh, but I really think it's, it's that, and it takes persistence. I subscribe to the, the, the idea that, you know, if if you're passionate about it and you you continue working hard at it enough, you know you will attract like-minded people, uh, and they'll help make it a reality, as opposed to you know something that you need to to do yourself. And so, an important part of it is is always reaching out, always talking to others, uh, always asking you know, does this seem like a good idea? Uh, are there others you know who are doing it? Uh, and there's been many a time when. You know, I've started a project and sound like somebody else was doing it. But the more I talked to them, I said, well, they're still kind of doing it in a slightly different way than, than I would or that I think would be most effective. Um, and, you know, so they become a partner and, and I'll still pursue, pursue it in a slightly different way. Uh, and that's, uh, I think that's the story, certainly, of Flip the West, Flip the 14, and, and what will now be uh, Activate America is networking, building partnerships wherever you can. Uh, and and looking to others to to uh, jump in and, and help is activate America is that nonprofit a super PAC 
Okay. Uh, so we're a 527 uh, in a super PAC. So where do you look to for funding for that? Do you, uh, small donors, big donors, both? What? All, all, all funding. So we've, it's been an interesting journey that way because we, we, we've been somewhat regional uh, or local in, in our work. I don't think, don't think we've had gotten the attention of, of some of the larger donors or donor tables there. You know, our volunteers are our best donors and our donors are often our best volunteers. And there's a real symbiosis there. A lot of political donors are what I call stock pickers. They like to pick candidates. They like to pick winners. The whole thing about, you know, uh, I know so-and-so is a senator or, or that sort of thing. But we're more of a mutual fund. People who understand and get the, the political activism and the community work and the door-to-door relational organizing, those are our, our donors and our supporters and not necessarily just political donors who, who you know, think that Democrats need to win and, and that sort of thing. What keeps you motivated to keep doing politics? I like to make change. I like to feel that I, you know, I make a difference, uh, and I in, enjoy empowering others uh, to feel the same. As I said, there's no permanent wins. It's intergenerational change that we need to feel, and we need to empower others to also get part of that. Uh, and especially as I, you know, get older and, and less entrepreneurial, <laughs> I tend to think more about what can I do to encourage others to get into politics. Uh, I I really look for opportunities to talk to classes, to political science classes, uh, and and, uh, share with them uh, what I've learned and how exciting it is to to be part of something that isn't just, oh, you know, they're all corrupt or they're all crooked. Nothing I can do will change it. And I'm just going to, you know, ignore all that uh, as opposed to really be an active consumer and participant in democracy. Well, I'm glad you're out there doing it. Uh, is there a question I failed to ask that I should have? No, I think we covered things pretty nicely. I mean, the issue is, you know, where where are we now in all this? And I'm constantly perplexed about what the Republican Party has become. The first candidate I ever worked for, and I started in high school in politics, was uh, Pete McCloskey. He was a Republican. He was a Republican environmentalist. Uh, he ran against Richard Nixon in New Hampshire. While I didn't go to New Hampshire with uh, for that campaign, I've kind of always regretted that I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I had the offer to to go there. It just kind of interfered with uh, how my parents saw saw my uh, schoolwork and everything, as opposed to this political thing. Uh, but we need a two party system. The Republicans don't seem like a party anymore than just kind of a, you know, except a grievance party, but not a political party. It feels so out of the box of where we are or where we're going that I guess at at one point it feels exciting for those of us who enjoy uh, political change and making political change. But on the other hand, uh, a very unsteady uh, future. Uh, uh, And I got out of the prediction business after Trump uh, was elected. Because it's just like, wow, I don't get this. I don't, none of this is making any sense to me. And a lot of it still isn't. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's, uh, there, there's work to be done. Uh, and I guess we just can't figure it all out. Yeah, no, I think we're in a dangerous point in history right now still. And 
I hope we can navigate our way safely out of it. And part of that is going to be that party sorting itself out at some point, because right now they're, they're a mess. Doug, it's an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you for the opportunity to be on your podcast and, and uh, have this conversation. That was Doug Linney. He's at activateamerica.vote. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.